0: I'm Glenn the Geek from Ocala, Florida, and you're listening to a special jumping edition of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for December sixth, episode fifteen eighty-one. Brought to you today by S. Equestrian and Walsh Products. Unfortunately, Emily has some last-minute issues to deal with. Some horses that are being shipped in this morning, and she has to take care of that. It's one of those things that all of us horse people have to deal with, and uh, you know, it's no different from the hosts of the Horses in the Morning show or any of the hosts on the Horse Radio Network. So, Emily, we hope you get things worked out this morning. I've put a best-of show for you together that includes some of the training and horse care tips that have you've you heard on the jumping episode over the years. Hope you enjoy them and learn a little something, too. This episode is brought to you
2: by Walsh Products. Walsh Products has been making top-quality halters, leads, training equipment, and leg protection since 1914. Craftsmanship, longevity, and ease of use are just a few of the reasons that professionals use Walsh every day, including jumpers Laura Kraut, Kent Farrington, and gold medalist Nick Skelton. Nick said, I like all the Walsh products, especially the sheepskin girths, because they are soft on the horse and easy to wash. The Walsh sheepskin girth is made using two-ply English elastic, extra heavy-duty machine-washable sheepskin, and offers improved ventilation and extra padding. Plus, it's only $79.99. Kent Farrington's favorite product is the Walsh British Halter. This halter is triple-stitched with a straight chin and solid brass fittings. This versatile horse halter comes in different leather options, as well as the classic closed throat or snap throat. You can find it today at walshproducts.com for only $114.99. You can find these products as well as the complete line at walshproducts.com today. That's walshproducts.com. You know one of
0: the things you have to worry about down there too is you get a lot of new horses in, you got a lot of babies that are traveling with uh, with the rest of them and you got to get them trained up, right?
3: It's true. It's very true. And so that's, I think, where the farm plays in, because you've got, you need to have a place to do this and you need to have somebody who can do it. So we have our next guest that's coming on is actually somebody that I just stumbled into at the horse show the other day, um, which I was like, wow, there's a cowboy at the horse show. What's going on? Hey, so we started talking. He was actually one of my friends. And as it turns out, I've I've been hearing about him for the last year or two because he's been helping um, a friend of mine uh, get her baby started. She's been doing a little bit of breeding and, you know, he'd come with all these rave reviews. So I met him face to face and was like, you know, this is awesome. This is somebody who's got a background in horses, a little bit natural horsemanship, some dressage, you know, riding all of this. And he is targeting our community. Um, and others, but you know we we are in need. Truth be told, um, of some horsemanship. We have people who are breeding. People are in the economy. They're buying young horses. Things are going awry out there on many different levels. So this was very refreshing to see somebody. We've got um, Cliff Shed is here from Common Thread Horsemanship. Cliff, welcome to the show.
4: Great to be here. Thanks for having me today, guys.
3: I'm so glad this worked out. This is super. So, I mean, I, it was such a breath of fresh air, honestly. So I think just not not many people know you because you're sort of new. Is that correct? Into the show jumping community?
4: I am. I was, uh, I was actually born into a hunter jumper family. Uh, my uncle is, is both a trainer and a judge. Um, my mom rode and showed for years. But uh, I, I took a long hiatus from that when I was really just still a kid. I, I went out west. I worked for ranches and uh, really great horsemen throughout the west. And uh, just just kind of got away for, from it for a while. But I realized that there's such a need for what I offer in this world that uh, it really made sense with my foundation behind me to, to come back to this.
3: That's so nice to hear. Yeah, because it... um. You know, it is very much like that. You don't want to be like, oh, you know, having a negative people are mismanaging their horses or whatever. But it, the, the reality is in a positive light is that people are, have to put so much emphasis on the competition side of things. There's a lot that goes into building a top horse, perfecting the inside turn, you know, learning how to if it swaps off or or it bulges its shoulder, whatever, there's a million different things. And so people get very focused on that 60 seconds in the ring and the horse doesn't load on the trailer. It stands up when you pull its mane, you know, like whatever, there's all these other behavioral issues because there's not emphasis on that and there needs to be because they do all go together. So tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got started. Like what has been your experience with these horses?
4: You know, I I think that for me, the horses are horses uh, regardless of discipline uh one of the reasons that i i call my business common thread horsemanship is because i've really come to learn and find that good horsemanship is just good horsemanship re- regardless of the saddle that you're using the the breed of horse that you're riding um the competition that you're entered in and it re- it really does come down to some really fundamental things and uh one of the things that i run into in the, in the show world is that uh, I find a lot of horses are, are literally, they're just stuck. They're behind the leg. Um, people are, are kind of begging them to move forward. They're not getting the impulsion that they need, um, whether it be to get to a jump or, or in the dressage world. Um, and, and so that's that's one of the biggest things I find is just it's just getting these horses lighter, softer, getting them to free up. And, and this benefits not only the young ones, but it, it benefits the campaigners as well. You know, I, I think that when you, do something, do the same thing with a horse repetitively, they start to figure out how to, how to get by, um, kind of giving as little as possible. And, uh, so that, that's one of the big things that i run into here. You know, I, I mean, overall this world is full of great horsemen and women, both, uh, that are, are really doing a great job getting these horses to do amazing things. Um, my goal is to come in and just try to enhance that relationship between, Horse and rider um, try to try to get these horses so that they're softer, lighter, happier, and that that's really my goal there, and, and kind of what I see a need for.
3: And is your sort of focus? Do you would you prefer to be able to get to these horses and programs and trainers? Um, say when they're like if you've got there's quite a few people, a lot of people, and even small operations that are breeding these days. I mean, just maiden voyage, they're not quite sure what they're doing, and they've you know breeding. They've got a mare that they loved and a stallion that they saw, and whatever they've got these babies. Right. So do you do you think that that's sort of like? you know, a benefit to be able to get to these programs and these babies when they're young? Or are you seeing that, you know, you can be effective even popping into a program where there's a 12-year-old horse that's maybe regressing and having some issues? Or what are you you seeing for for your consistency out there?
4: I look at so much of what I do as uh, as fundamentals and uh, foundation. And I, I think that, without a, you know, any, anybody that builds or does anything would tell you that you you can't really build a great house on top of a poor foundation. And so, you know, absolutely when it comes to the young horses, I'd really love to set these horses up for success, uh, to give them, you know, that foundation that, that you can always come back to later on as that horse develops. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about breaking and this and that, and I really look at it as development. It's young horse development, um, everything that we do with a horse, every time we put our hands on it, we're either training it or untraining it. And, uh, and so I, I really like to look at, you know, the first, you know, 60 or 90 days of a horse's life as a, as a really great time to instill some lifelong lessons in that horse that are really going to come back to help him later on. Um, that being said, as far as the older horses, the 12 year old horse that's maybe rearing or bucking or doing something like that. Um, I do love to get my hands on those horses because uh, a lot of times it's a pretty easy fix and it it usually just requires a a bit of thinking outside the box and, um, you know, maybe helping to strengthen the foundation on that horse. The, The really neat thing about horses is that they are so adaptable that even if you don't necessarily have the best foundation behind the 12 year old, you can teach them and show them a lot of things with a little bit of patience and a little bit of time, so that that is it's cr- quite rewarding either way, but I do love the babies
3: that's nice. I have a passion for the babies too. I love them um, so talk to me about that. what is sort of your philosophy you're getting started the the developmental process, um, to talk to me about that when you're, you're backing the bridle, I mean, what, what sequence are you going in? Or do you have, do you have sort right. of a feeling, you know, like you, you and I talked briefly about, um, about backing, uh, with yes, the saddle sir. versus not so little things like that, you know, what, what do you want to share about that? Sure. Uh, you know, I think that,
4: uh, I think that, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the saying that, you know, if you, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans and it, it's kind of the same with horses. <laughs> Um, you know, is that I really find that watching other guys in the past, you know, that have come before me that have had, uh, programs or, you know, they, they had this direct line way of thinking where they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this with every horse. And, uh, you know, that worked for maybe 80% of the horses, but there were 20% that, that, that style wasn't reaching. So, um, I try to treat every horse like an individual. I mean, I, I do have, um, you know, I do have a philosophy and I do have an idea of what I want to do with each horse. But I, I do, you know, some horses, some of these babies that I start, the first ride is bareback. I just, you know, I, I get them pretty good with me crawling up on them and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, before you know it, I'm sitting on a bareback and it's a really low stress way for them to get started. Um, others, there's just a ton of time and groundwork that goes in before they're even going to allow the saddle on. So for me, I, I I try not to get too hung up on uh, my own agenda, because I, I think that you know a, a really great horseman is one that that listens to the horse and then adjusts to the horse, and that that's really what I try to do with these youngsters is just try to adjust to what they need. But um, totally. but that being said, that being said, I am really progressive. Um, I think that sometimes we spend a lot of time you know waiting and begging a horse to do something unnecessarily when if we just go for it and we just kind of you know, move forward, set the pace, be the leader. Um, And and it's that, that is the key thing. Key component here is that uh, horses seek a leader. They're herd animals. They're instinctively, they're looking to follow someone or something so that, you know, that's, that's really the main thing that I try to establish right away is that I can control their feet, where their feet go forward, backward, laterally. Um, I can control the speed of their feet. And we do this in a round pen. We do it at the end of the lead rope. And we just get that horse to understand that, you know, they need to respect our space. They need to respect the fact that I can move them. And once you really have that, you start to really have the horse's mind. So that, that's kind of my program there with the youngsters.
3: That's it's very refreshing. It's uh, for sure the individuality of the horse is such a factor. and that is a bit lost. I think when people are so busy and they have huge programs, I mean, there are people coming down here with 40, 50, 60 horses more. I mean, oh, yeah. the oh. more, <laughs> you know, you've yeah. been here. So there is yes. very hard to look at a sea of horses like that and manage them individually. Although they all need yeah. to be managed individually. They are their own personality yeah. and confirmation and all of that. Um, so that's very refreshing. I think, uh, I think really you're, I mean, you're onto it. You're going to, you're going to really uh, just talking to you. I can really see kind of where you're coming from and you're, you're right on. You're going to definitely make a business here. So how, how can we get the word out? What is, where can people kind of get a hold of you? Do you have a website? Are you going to be down Whoa. here for the whole circuit? Give us a little ear on that.
4: You know, it's funny, true to true to a lot of cowboys, I, I haven't gotten too embroiled in the, the website thing, although I am working on one now because I've been, I've been told that's an important thing to have in this world. So I am working on that. Um, most of, you know, I, I've stayed probably busier than, you know, than I can handle up north. Uh, I've, been, I've been based out of Long Island for the past few years now, and I've been super busy up there. I do really want to expand to this part of the world. And, uh, you know, everything has been really word of mouth, but, uh, you know, people can get a hold of me. They can look me up on Facebook. That's, that's really been a great tool for me. I've got a common thread horsemanship page. Um, I, I also use my personal page as a business page. And so that, that's, that's a great way to start. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, you know, that, that's kind of the best way to get a hold of me right now.
3: And so what is your, are you freelancing? What's your situation? Are you taking horses in on training or I know you did some saddle, start, saddle breaking or starting how you're calling it for a couple top stud farms. Um, so you're, that's freelance, but what's the other deal? Yes.
4: Yes. Um, I, I primarily freelance. I've been freelance for the past few years now. Uh, although I, I do refer back to my mentors quite a bit, I try to go and ride with them as much as possible, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's all freelance. Uh, Down here, I am eventually, you know, if things really take off, I really hope to maybe set up a small farm here where I can take young horses in. uh, And that's kind of what I'm looking at.
0: I got to blame you, Cliff. I mean, it's Long Island in the winter or Wellington in the winter. I think I know which I'd pick.
1: Absolutely. So let me ask you
0: about Long Island a little bit. Are there a lot of horses still left out there? Is the development approaching and pushing the horses out or what?
4: There's there's a ton. I mean, absolutely, there's there's a ton of horses, and there's some really, really high-quality horses out there uh, that I, I've been really privileged to work with.
0: Oh, good, good. Well, I didn't know, you know, if yeah. development was kicking them out or they, they were still hanging around. Uh, no,
4: I think, the, I think the farms have gotten, you know, some of them have gotten smaller, but there's still an insane amount of horses out there. It's one of the highest concentrations of horses anywhere in the country still. And you wouldn't and think a few that breeding I mean, you, farms, right? Yeah, you wouldn't but think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> quite a few breeding farms. There's, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of big training barns. I mean, there's, there's a little of everything there. There's something for everybody as far as the horse community goes up there.
0: Hey, Cliff. Before we let cool. you go, you said about your mentors. Who, who are some of them?
4: Well, I, you know, it's really funny. There's. Uh, my mentors kind of range through the disciplines. Um, you know, I, I've always loved what uh, George Morris has to say. I think that George is right on when it comes to, you know, his his methodology and, and his foundation for training horses. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of Buck Brandman. Um Buck has really shown me and taught me a lot. Uh, he, he's been a great influence over me, uh, as, as well as even dressage riders like Jan Bronze. I've ridden with Jan a little bit at you know, I've taken a lot from that. So, so it it really does run the gamut for me. But, you know, if you look at what even the three uh, horsemen that I mentioned there, if you look at the three of them, they really share a lot of common denominators uh, in in their dedication to the horse, in their, you know, their ability as far as uh, in in each their specific genre, what they get their horses to do. And I, I think that's just, you know, that's huge.
0: And the one big common denominator with the three is the the concentration on the basics. Uh, Yes, making sure you have the basics down. Yeah,
4: absolutely, Uh, absolutely. Foundation, foundation, foundation.
0: Well, we're going to put a link to your Facebook page on ours, and also in our show notes today. Good luck down there in Wellington, Cliff, and we appreciate you stopping
4: by.
3: Yeah, thanks for talking, Cliff. For
4: having me today, and uh, just great show. And keep up the good work, guys. Thank you.
3: All
5: right, thanks. We'll see you soon, Cliff. Oh, yeah. Very excited about this. We have none other than Jimmy Fairclaw, top rider, trainer, dealer, shopper. Always got great horses for sale. uh, Riding in the Young Jumpers most recently. Really tearing it up out there. He is bringing us our training horse show tip. Welcome to the show, Jimmy.
6: Hi. Thank you very much for having me. Well, one thing I wanted to bring to the table with you guys is that um, I've had a rare opportunity to be able to ride with many different riders in very different schools of thought. Uh, I rode through in Europe, I rode in the States, I rode with Frank Chappell, Candace King, you know, Ludger Bierbaum and, 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 you know, those people at Stahl Hendricks, the Neil Hendricks. And the schools of thought have been, I mean, unbelievably vast in the differences. And it's amazing how many different ways there are to skin a cat. But, you know, while training young horses here in the States, it's one thing I've noticed is that we always have a tough time battling is Bringing horses over from Europe and quote unquote Americanizing them and I find that the toughest thing in terms of Americanizing them or making them a little easier for us to ride. Not all of us are you know six foot three tall European guys with hands of iron and can hold a horse with a loose ring snaffle and jump a meter sixty <laughs> um not yeah, I. I believe that. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, Emily's about as far away that- from that as you can get, yeah. Jimmy. So. When I go
5: shopping over <laughs> there, right. it's ridiculous. I'm like rolling the irons like two and three times. <laughs> it's outrageous. But anyways, you're right. Yes. <laughs> no,
6: no, exactly. And, and and they always say, oh, we put the strong bid on for you. Oh, really? Well, thank you. I, I greatly appreciate that.
5: The weak American.
6: That's one thing that... I- Exactly. And one thing that I I learned from a great horseman, Frank Chapo, is developing a natural eye for the horses. Now, by natural eye, I mean that the horse is judging the distances on their own. And I never truly understood it or really respected it until I worked with Frank hand in hand on developing his young horses. I came straight from the school of thought where in Europe, you you force a horse into this frame, you know, the, the frame in the picture that looks beautiful. But beneath that facade, it is an absolute freight train, almost a nightmare, if you will, of, of battling between leg and hand and, and forcing the horse's stride at all times to be always calculated, always forced, and always to a distance that, that the rider dictates. And when I started riding for Frank, he, he said, no rider can be perfect. You can find every distance, every time, and be spot on every time. The horse has to help you. So when we were working with young horse development, he always drilled in that we have to develop the natural eye. Now that means when you're with the young horse, he said your job is simply to get the horse to the fence. Get the horse to the fence and let them get over it. Long, short, or indifferent, let them jump the fence and let them leave it up. If you're always telling them where to jump from, where the distance is going to be, how are they gonna help you when you're in the Grand Prix ring in Aachen or Hickstead and you have a little bit of a hand gallop and you find a long one to a triple bar, you know, can you can you ju- uh, trust them to help you out to cover that gap? Or maybe even a deep one, you know, going to a vertical off a tight rollback and the jump off of the Olympics. Uh you, you never know when, when it when it's gonna come in to help you.
5: When and you don't want it to happen to- is when it happens.
6: <laughs> oh, I <I've> found <laughs> exactly the flyer right. again. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly right, and you know. With that said, you can look back at videos of Frank and and uh, Steinkraus and those guys. You don't always find the perfect distances, and there's no way a rider can find every single distance on course for you know for eternity. And the horse has to be able to help you. And one thing I, I respected so much about this is his natural horsemanship and just developing that horse's natural eye. I I'm, I can remember going. On course, after riding the horses in Europe and how they were produced and everything's going to an added stride or everything's manufactured, you would, Frank, you would go in there and you would allow the horse to canter down into the fences. And it wasn't even fair. I mean, you would get into some of these young horse divisions here in the States and it wasn't even fair because, you know, if you get in the jump off, there's no way anybody could keep up with those horses no way, because you can trust, you can turn out of the corner, you can kick, you can add, you can do whatever, and they will leave that fence up because they naturally respect that that fence on their own. You're not dictating that that distance every single time.
5: Wow, that's a really... I mean, okay, um, going... Back in time, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but really distances themselves, the the act of manufacturing those distances globally was really not that long ago that we switched over. I think it was like the 70s or something, 60s maybe?
6: Yes, actually, uh, my grandfather was one of the, the innovators in, in, in uh, measured distances, uh, Dr. Rost. And uh, you're, you're 100% right that this is not a very long time ago that we started these measured distances.
5: And that was the big argument was, okay, maybe if you're looking at the smoothness, if you want to style class a little bit, you can say that it's a bit more consistent, maybe if the rider's manufacturing the distance. But if I remember correctly, the big argument was that the actual suppleness of the animal deteriorates.
6: Absolutely. And it's pretty funny and interesting to look back at the Olympic videos from yesteryear with the George Morris, or like I said, Steinkraus, or Mary Mares, or Frank Chapeau. And it's interesting to see how how few related distances there were and how much they relied on the horses to to help judge those distances on those long approaches and those giant houses of a a fence that they had to jump. Uh, It's it's quite interesting to see how the sport has progressed and and bringing that old-school thought of, of trying to have a horse develop a natural eye and Bring it into the modern day show jumping, where you have crazy set lines. I mean, you, oh, the you, you technicality, and, yeah, and of it's course you, It's it's unbelievable, and and the margin for error is so small these days. And and it's it's interesting to see how things have developed. Um, and, and one person I can always point to in showing a horse's natural eye is is Laura Chapeau, Frank's daughter, and you watch her ride. And there is, I have to, I, I can argue with anybody all day long. I've never seen a rider want to win every class as much as she does. And it, she comes out and you, you watch her horse and you say, oh, how do I beat that? How do I beat that? When she can come out of the corner and gallop, when I have my, my strong, uh, Dutch warm blood and I have to manufacture it out of the corner and do one more step than she does.
5: It's, it's not possible to compete with that. It's not possible. You just hope she has one it's, down. It's, It's not possible. Exactly. That's the best you can hope for. Yeah, but that's so interesting because, okay, I've watched uh, Laura show my whole life. We're from sort of the same area, and I mean, that. oh, gosh, she goes so fast. It's like crazy, crazy fast with total disregard at times for (laughs) the stride and the distance, and now it makes sense because there is total disregard (laughs) for the distance and the stride.
6: But damn, they leave the jumps up
5: all the time. (laughs)
6: all the time. And you kind of go, how, like I say, when you ride one of their horses, you say, this isn't fair when you go in the ring and to have a nice blend of training from that, that's that mentality of letting a horse develop that natural scope, that natural feeling, that natural judge of the distance. If you're a good and talented rider, you can come out of the corners and and you can gallop to those long ones and and believe in your horse more than, you know, I, I personally can for the ones I purchased from Europe. I mean, I do not trust them nearly as much as I I, I could if I I just had a little more uh, belief in, in their own natural ability to back up off the fences.
5: That they're like partners, totally. Yeah, no, and and that's the gig. When you roll one down in the ring, like you ask and you don't receive, you ask them exactly. to back up and they blow through you for half a second too long, and bam comes the front rail. So it's like you think, like, gosh, I need to make them thinkers and partners. So so walk us through that. How okay, maybe this uh, you're already showing and you've got a track record of doing it the manufactured way. How does somebody uh, sort of kindly to the animal start switching it up on them and asking them to be a partner?
6: Well, that, that's a good question because it's a very, very fine line between doing too little and too much. And one thing that Frank always had me do and one thing that I love doing is that you find a distance with a horse and you don't, you don't want to lie to it. You don't want to, uh, you know... Fool it in any way, you get to the distance and you softening at the base. One thing I really drill on all of my students is self-carriage and letting the horse soften and carry themselves to the base. Even if you know you're going to have a rail at home, you soften to the base, you allow them to get there, and you you show them deep distances, you show them long distances, and you try to gradually build from the manufactured frame, the manufactured uh, distance, and then try to build from there. You know, like I say, three strides out, I will have my distance. And then for a young one, say a five year old that likes to punch out the front rail, three strides away, I will totally abandon it and let it get there. Nothing big, nothing square, nothing scary. Let them get there. Let them judge that. As they start to develop, and you know, not every horse is naturally that careful enough, but <laughs> as they start to develop that, that respect for the rail and saying, oh, whoa, 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 wait here. He's not going to help me for that distance. I need to start to help myself. It's it's a very fine progression. It takes some time to develop the feeling. And and I'm not saying that you need to trap them or you need to set up the lines and and, uh, gauging the different distances in in a line. I feel it can be done simply on a single fence in itself. And, you know, usually I use a little bit more bit than, than what is necessary. And I will take a nice half halt when I'm going to the fence. I have found my distance. And then I start to soften on the horses. Um, you know, I, I will occasionally start to press if the distance is a little deep and I will challenge them to help themselves out even more. Or if the distance is a little long, I will take my leg off and have them naturally cover that, that ground instead of doing, you know, what your instincts are. When it's a little bit long, you know, close your leg. When it's a little bit short, you kind of take your leg off a little bit there. Um, I, I, I just try to test them in every single way and try to give them almost kind of an amateur style ride where you you just do not support them as much as they have been and so i mean you ride great Jenny.
5: i mean you really ride great so this is you're, you see where you are you know way back in the corner so you're although it's a manufactured unmanufacturing is what you're doing but what about exactly. for somebody who doesn't know where they are they need and but they they like this this idea okay they've Hopefully, got a good trainer and a ground person. So this is something you want to do, maybe in a lesson scenario. How, like, how would they start with a line, or, or so that they could kind of count and gauge, or how would you start?
6: Well, I would also say that the takeoff and landing poles would be a huge aid. Uh, okay. You know, when you watch somebody like, so Ann Kravinsky with the soft feeling, always out of attack, never, never forcing a horse to do a certain way, and always having a self carriage. You know, watching someone like that, watch their position, You're always carrying a neutral seat. You get into, you give yourself a, a takeoff rail and a landing rail. You try to find a little bit of a neutral seat, not a driving seat, you know, not a full-on two-point, but you get your, out, yourself out of the task, let, let the rail dictate where the horse needs to take off, and then... You know, give them a little bit of support. Also, you know, challenge them a little bit. Instead of doing 10 feet, do 12 feet or, you know, 10 feet, go to 9 feet for the takeoff rail. You know, vary drastically between the distances with 3 to 4 feet in in the difference. If you can't find the distance or if you don't trust yourself, then help yourself to take off or landing pole where the horse has to pay attention. Um, I mean, you really have to have a good ground person to help you gauge when the time is right, whether you shorten up the landing rail or, you, you know, you lengthen the takeoff rail. Um it's a very big thing, you know, having a great crown person and helping you with that.
5: Oh, it's um, crucial. I uh, love the rails. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Because then that's the thing is, okay, we always want to grow and get better as riders, but it's a partnership. You have to think about your horse, you know, how can you help them? They He didn't get the memo, you know, that we all had the conversation. Yeah. And today we're going to start underriding and you're going to start finding your own distances. So you have to sort of explain yeah. it to them kindly through your exercise. And uh, I mean, you're, that's, that's brilliant. The the poles, the line, Well, absolutely.
6: And I I don't ever believe that it it needs to be too much. I don't believe that you have to do five bounces in a row or, or, you know, six, one strides or anything insane. I I truly believe in in, in the development that I had in the time that I had with Frank as as short as it was, we never did. And I say never, we never did anything too, too extravagant or too detailed. It was very basic and it was very natural with the horses and always, Always about the feeling and judging the horse's mind and, and allowing them to figure themselves out. Uh, it, it was it's a very very fine line that you have to walk, and I, I really feel that you you battle you know nature versus nurture when when trying to get a horse from Europe and develop developing them into a you know, little bit of a natural eye. It's not the easiest thing in the world. I believe the easiest thing in the world is is to have one from the beginning and teaching them from. The time you first get on them at three years old, uh, till you know, to the young horse development years, in allowing them to develop that natural eye, and I, I can't say enough about that with with uh, Frank and the horses that he's developed. I mean, I don't need to say anything other than the, the, the two uh, two words, Jim Twist." Um, yep. You know, that that's a horse that proves that you, with a natural eye, they can do anything with three different riders. He was horse of the year and, uh, you know, went to the Olympics and won the countless Grand Prixs and probably the best show jumper horse that we've ever produced here in the States.
5: It's Um, true. Well, this is sort of the dawn of the American breeding movement. I I mean, my Facebook news feed is filled with people who are breeding even one and single horses. So this is the chance people are going to have to start really thinking about our program in this country and how we get to Mm -hmm. where we want to get literally from like halter broke
6: exactly and and uh, it'd be interesting to see how how we start developing horses. I, I totally I, don't get me wrong. I credit the Europeans and everything they do they they can produce amazing results. but yeah. the style of riding that we have here is not conducive to what they do. I mean, they, it's illegal for yeah. them to do anything more than a loose string snaffle after at five years old. And it, it, there are theories and their ideas of how to develop a horse and the way they jump are a little bit different than what we have here in the states. It would be very interesting over the next coming years to see what the young horses we produce, uh, you know, can can you know, bring to the Grand Prix ring.
5: Absolutely. Well, you guys check it out. As you can hear, this is why we wanted Jimmy on air. He is extremely knowledgeable, got great insight, ridden with tons of different riders and and programs around the world and country. You guys can check him out online. He does training and riding, but also sales. So if you're looking for something that's already been Americanized, you can check him out at stonehorsefarmct.com.
7: Hey, our I believe our next guest is ready, and I'm
5: really excited to
7: listen to you girls just talk, talk, talk about about the jumpers and exercises. And Denise Wilson is on the line. Yay! Welcome to the uh, show,
8: Denise. Oh, thank you guys so much. How are you guys doing?
5: We're doing great. We're doing great. Up early, up and Adam.
8: Yeah, for for yeah, uh, I, Jamie. uh, Jamie's
5: different time zone. So <laughs> I was
8: gonna say. Um, I I'm not congested but I have lost my voice a little bit. So oh, if no. you guys have a have a hard time hearing me, uh just just let me know.
5: Oh man. Yeah, it's sound that time great. of year.
8: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just that time of year with the weather going cold and then hot and then cold and I uh I feel fine. I just don't sound great.
5: Oh man. Well, where are you now? You sound okay, but where are you? Uh, I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay.
8: How's the weather there? So that it. Today, it's beautiful. It's going to be about 70 degrees. The sun is out. Um, I base here during the summer and a little bit of the fall. And most of the time, you just you can't beat the weather and there's no better place for horses. Uh, especially
7: Lexington in October is the most beautiful time because the grass is still a little green, but the, the leaves are starting to change. It, it's just yeah. gorgeous, gorgeous. Yes,
8: we we had an absolutely stunning sunrise this morning. The sky was pink and orange and a little bit of purple and I uh it was it was definitely something to see.
5: Wow, it does look beautiful. I've actually never been to the horseshoe. I can't believe it after all these years. I got to get out there.
8: Oh, you you absolutely do. And then there's you know we have a, a new show coming up this week at the Split Rock Jumping Tour. It's these new international shows. There's one in May and and one obviously this week in October. Um, and uh, looks like we're going to have great weather for it.
5: Oh, that's great. Those are really taking off. Congratulations with all that. That's exciting.
8: Oh. Yeah, it's it's a it's a different show. It's special and and it's a lot of fun and and as a rider, it's it's really nice to see a show that celebrates the sport of of show jumping and really caters to exhibitors and spectators and sponsors. Um, it's it's something that I would love to see more of in in the states.
5: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the the pictures, I was following it a little bit this summer. Um, you had a great turnout, lots of riders, and the course yes. designers, all of it. It was top-notch, really. Yes, yes.
8: And this is even more of a step up. There's a huge international crowd coming. They sold out of stalls. Um, so it's it's going to be a really fun weekend.
5: Oh, that's awesome. I'll have to keep up with it. Will there be a live stream?
8: There will be. Um, I believe it's on USF Network. That's who did it last time um but uh it's it's definitely live streamed
5: That's great. That's so cool. Well, you would know we had Denise on a few episodes ago when she was going overseas with the squad jumping quite a few different locations with her top mounts. So we got to hear about that and you had great success which was awesome. And then on the other Thank side you. of the coin, I know you have a breeding operation at home, a lot of young horses, development horses coming through the ranks. So I thought it would be fun. You guys can check it out, by the way, online. Bluegate Farm is Denise's farm. It's bgfsporthorses.com. You can see what she's got going on. But I thought it would be really fun to hear from you. You've got all of these different levels of horses and development, and you know, you're know you flying all over the place, going to different horse shows. How do you really find a, a middle area training-wise and maybe some extra? Exercise- exercises or talk to us a little bit about that with your business and so many different levels of horses, how you find, how, how are you able to be the trainer, rider, developer, developer for all of these different age groups?
8: Well, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it is, it is definitely a formula that you have to figure out. Um, you know, one, one of the most important things, having horses at all different levels is having a solid team, uh, behind you. And I have some really good people at home. I have uh, people that take care of the horses. So if I go to one horse show, uh, say with the older horses, I know that the young horses at home are still getting well taken care of and worked. Um, It's also uh, scheduling is is a fun thing um, to try and figure out because obviously with the different levels of horses, you go to different levels of shows. Um, So you know first and foremost you look at the group you have and you set goals for each individual horse and obviously all goals have to be flexible as they're animals and not machines but you have a general plan for for each year and you know you when i'm at home i i get i rarely have more than 2 weeks in one spot at home Um, so I, I try to stay strict to a schedule and, and really try to get my work done. And then when I'm gone, I trust the team to, to keep it going so I can come back and pick up where I left off.
5: And now you're, you obviously take your top horses on the road. I know you had quite a few down in Wellington, traveling to Ocala back and forth, and doing a lot of showing yeah. with them. When you're home and you're working on the young horses, I know you've got the breeding horses in all different ages. What, yeah. what would you, when do you say you're kind of ready and decided to take one of these young guys on the road with you? Well, that's, uh, it's
8: something where you have to listen to the horse and know when they're ready, you know, basing in Lexington is super valuable. The farm I'm at is 10 minutes from the horse park. So when there's shows at the horse park, I, it's it's nice to take the young ones. They ship in, they do their job, they come home, they can get turnout. Nothing's ever too stressful for them. Um, and around seven years old, at the end of the year, I start asking them to to step up. Um, you know, as a seven-year-old, I like them to be jumping 135 Uh, some special ones will jump 140 uh, at the end of their seven year old year. Um, and, and they start getting more exposure and going to different shows. And I start putting a little more pressure on them so they get used to it. And then, you know, their eight year old years where they, they need to start putting their big kid pants on. And I just, I just stepped up a very special eight year old this summer into some of the grumps. And that's also what, uh, it goes back to scheduling. At the beginning of the summer, I set certain goals, certain Grand Prix's that I knew this horse would be ready for at certain points in the summer. Um, you know, he jumped his very first ranking class, uh, which was an FEI 145 at the Split Rock Tour in May. And then I went to Europe, so the horse had a little downtime to decompress. When I came back, he did a lot of 140 classes in, in July, and he did one 145 in try on And then he went home and he trained. And then in August, he jumped his first big Grand Prix here in Kentucky on a Sunday. And the hard work paid off and he had jumped clean. Uh, And then he went back down, took a breath, uh, had a couple weeks off, and then we pushed him again. And we always do a warm-up with the young horses. They don't jump big every class. I think that can really um, play a part in a horse's confidence because you don't want to challenge them every time in in the ring. You want to make sure they are sure about themselves. And like I said, each horse is different. So the most important thing I find is listening to each horse individually and what they need.
5: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Now you, you talked about the breaks, um, doing young horses myself. I, the, the babies, you know, it's, it's no brainer. It's a must. They have to have little breaks, but as they get yeah. older, when do you decide that they're due for one? And what, what is a break for maybe a five-year-old, a six-year-old, your seven-year-old, you were saying, what is, what does their rest time look like? And when do you really feel like, okay, it's time. He needs a little break.
8: Well, I think it all, it all kind of depends on the schedule I put the the young five and six year olds. I don't want to over show. Um, so I will get them their experience. And if I feel like they have put the pieces together, uh, and I'm happy with their progress, they will then take a two to three week break. Uh, they might go to another horse show after that. If they've retained anything or if they need to work on something, they might do another week in a row and then have a break. Um, and and really, it's it's hard to to tell exactly what um, you know. Every horse needs two weeks. Every horse needs three weeks. It all depends on the individual mind of the horse, um, and and kind of what your goals are. Uh, I have a six-year-old right now that I find very special, and so now he's going to be he's had a break for the last month, um, and he's going to do try on in two weeks, but he's going to do open classes. He's going to do an open one thirty to prepare for the seven-year-olds. And then he will do try on, have all of December off to, to stay fit and get his body uh, rested and healthy and strong. And then he'll be able to debut the seven-year-olds in January.
5: Wow. So he'll have a break uh, after the training before coming down to do his his biggest classes of his career to yeah. date. Night nice. and so when they're home on break, do they do flat work? Do they do training. What do you? Is it kind of case by case?
8: Um, a lot of flat work. Uh, I I do like to supplement using a Pessoa rig. I find especially young horses that might be a little weak behind um, can benefit with that because one, you give their their backs a break of having the weight of a rider on them. Um, and if they are struggling to, to build that strength behind, they might fight, fight the rig a little bit. And then you take, you, you end up letting them fight themselves. So they don't resent a rider pulling on their mouth while they're trying to figure their balance and strength out. Um, I like to do that once or twice a week. Um, but flat work for me is the most important. than do hill work, which I'm sure any, any rider will know is good for, um, you know, a horse's strength behind trotting up hills is, is one of the best things you can do for developing a young horse's hind end. And if you don't have hills, there's other things you can do. Um, I like to do trot Cavalettis, uh which is a something I learned from, I know, another um, person that comes on the show, Reese uh, Coffler Stanfield. And I uh, I also like to do other Cavaletti work at the canter within the flat work. For me, that's not necessarily jumping. The Cavalettis are two feet off the ground and you can really learn a lot about where your horse is in, in rideability just by putting mm-hmm. two Cavalettis up and trying to practice going forward and leaving a stride out or coming back and adding a stride in. For, for me, when I'm home, I don't have always have someone on the ground telling me what to do. So sometimes I have to find ways to check my work. Check, check my work and see if I'm doing enough. See if I have the rideability I want. And that's a really easy way to do it without putting too much stress on the horses. And that way I can kind of gauge where I am in each horse's progress.
5: Yeah, that, that is really nice. Absolutely, because that's sort of the the balance, wouldn't you say, with With your horses, um, you know, as they get older, you've got to, I mean, even the younger ones as well, you've got to keep training and keep creating those exercises for them and for yourself, but without all the constant pounding of the big jumps and then the the right. pressure and the stress and the horse show ring relief. But, you know, gosh, it takes a lifetime of the, of the animal to really learn all the little nuance of like you're saying, moving up, leaving one out, settling, adding one, you know, these are all real life situations that they're going to encounter and, and you, we've got to keep just developing, but that's, would you say that's kind of your management as the horses get older is kind of managing the the pounding?
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't like to over jump my horses at home. Um, you know, I also want to make sure show and ready. If you're at a show, you shouldn't be training, you should be there ready to compete. Um with older horses. Um and so at home, if I have a two week break in between shows, I usually do not jump um anything over a Cavaletti uh the first week they're home. And then they usually do one day of grid work the second week and then they'll jump maybe Uh, A course the the next time, or it might be a course first and then grid work before they go to the show. Um, You know, and obviously you set up a grid with each horse in mind. I don't find a lot of exercises should just be cookie cutter. I think you have to really know what each horse needs to learn and needs to work on to get the most out of a jumping session because it's very important not to jump the horses too much because you don't want to wear their legs out and you don't want to get them body tired. Um, and so it's, it's just a delicate balance of getting enough work in without sacrificing the horse's health.
7: Do you, yeah. um, do you mind if I jump in? Uh, do you have a, a specific kind of outline that you follow or is it just look at it and see what you're going to do today?
8: Uh I have, I kind of, at each week I have a general idea of, okay. of which, which horse is going to do what on each day. Um, and then I always have a general idea of like uh, one Prix horse uh, that I needed to work on oxers out of combinations. I was getting a little, I uh, wasn't quite getting across as much as I'd want to. So I knew in my mind I was going to practice an oxer, oxer, oxer you know, nothing huge, but low and wide to, to figure out how to get him to stretch across. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I I rarely jump on a Tuesday, um, because all the horses have off Monday and I find it very important that the horses are flatted a day before they jump. Mm -hmm. Uh, this also decreases a risk and injury because the horses are looser and, and all of that. um, so I, I just, I tend to jump, you know, maybe a little bit Wednesday or Thursday and then the bigger stuff or, or really if I need to jump heavy and train something, I save that for Friday or Saturday.
7: Okay. Interesting.
5: And then I have a question. What about when you're gearing up, you're talking about that last jump school, whether it be before or after your grid work, what, I mean, I guess it depends on on the horse, but how do you decide what height that school is?
8: Definitely depends on the horse uh, it depends on what they're going to show in the next week um, and also what I feel underneath me at uh, in that moment if I feel that they're jumping oh well, they're jumping plenty high maybe they need to jump a little wider versus taller um, you know the, i I do personally do not jump very big at home um, I think it's important sometimes with young horses in a, in a nice, easy situation to teach them to jump bigger. Um, but as far as my, my older horses, I jump 140, 145 maybe um, when they're gearing up. But I do, like I said, I do that rarely and maybe once a week um, just to make sure they're, they're honest and on it and, and all of that. But uh, I like to save the big jumping for the show.
5: Well, exciting. Well, we're going to keep keep up with you, follow you on Facebook and you guys check her out online bgfsporthorses.com. You can see what Denise is up to. Thank you so much Denise for coming on and sharing all this oh, info with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun. Dr. Tom Griffith, welcome to the show.
9: Good morning. Good morning.
5: Yeah, I'm so glad we were able to work this out. Now, Dr. Griffith, I met—gosh, um, maybe a couple months ago. Now he is a good friend of a good friend of mine. So it was uh, we, I got a referral to? I've, I've got two animals actually w- that had sort of serious problems. Um, but oh my gosh, the it was unbelievable. The the both of my my animals are doing much much better. So we'll get into that. But Dr. Griffith, tell us about what it is that you do.
9: Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a veterinarian, so I have a general practice as well, but what we're talking about here is veterinary orthopedic manipulation, and it's, uh, it's a, a, a neuronal adjusting technique that, that utilizes an activator to uh, motion the uh, spinal column in order to affect the adjustment that we're trying to do to, to reduce the uh, subluxations that are, are present in the, in the animal's body.
5: Which I mean, it's the, you've got a couple different machines that you that you use. I'll post the the other videos after the show. Um, I I know that people use chiropractors and body workers and all this. I've really never gotten so much into it. I myself have gone to a chiropractor because um, I've obviously you know. Being a professional rider and whatnot, but um, my I was shocked at the results with my two animals. Some of you know my chestnut horse, um, 20 hearts, very nice horse, has a very crooked tail, holds it to the side, kind of like all the time, like an Arabian. Right. So that was my original thing. The horse, he's a development horse, he's in the market. This is something we wanted to look at. So that he he was he, you know, missing his lead changes maybe 30, 40% of the time. Um, so that was something we wanted to investigate, but then I had, when Dr. Griffith got to the barn, he, he does, as we are talking, large animals, horses, he looked down at my wiener dog, Arno, which some of you know, um, he Arno. hurt his back. <laughs> I felt so terrible. A couple, maybe it was a couple weeks before I met Mr. Griffith, I thought he fell and maybe broke his tail because it was um, just the tail. You know, it wasn't working, uh-huh. it wasn't picking up and all this, and he looked at the dog and was said immediately, he's got something wrong with the disc in his back. And he used the same technique. He has a small animal practice as well. Palm beach animal hospital. They're online. Uh palm, PA animal And he did the same technique to the dog within two sessions. He was wagging his tail. He was all better. Yeah. <gasps> no I, way. I couldn't believe it. It was absolutely night and day. So this is incredibly effective, small animal and large animal. So, and my wow. horse's tail, by the way, is, is laying straight, but oh, really? Just, yeah. Yeah. Oh what gosh. Dr. Griffith, what did we do? Three sessions
9: so far? Uh we have done uh yesterday was his fourth session. Yes,
5: yesterday so, was
9: uh, Yeah, so it, it, you know it's all this this technique is so so unbelievable. And uh, you know, the the way it will help just about any animals having specifically the kind of problems that you were just talking about with your dog and your horse. And uh, you know, you'd you'd ask me about which That I'm using three different types of machines. The the primary one that that actually affects the adjustment is is an activator. And what that does is it puts motion into each spinal segment. And wherever there is a subluxation or basically in layman's terms, you could describe it as a blown circuit breaker, uh, which happens when there's injury or toxin or any kind of inflammation will feed back into the central nervous system. It goes through the, the spinal cord at that circuit breaker, which is the synapse. And so that gets what's called a subluxation, and it's basically a blown circuit breaker. So the 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 uh, the first part of the uh, technique that we do is the adjustment. So we're reducing all of this subluxation. So we're going along each segment, and we are turning the circuit breaker back on. The good thing is that if it's already on, it won't turn it off. It'll only turn the ones that are off back on. So, and then the uh, second second part of the uh, adjustment is the myofascial release release with uh, a device called an arthrostim, and what that does, that puts controlled motion back into the joints where there may be some joints that are a little stiff or stuck, and uh, so we um, we're able to do the any areas that uh, are showing that we concentrate on and work on them. You know, sometimes the ribs will be a little bit out of out of place and and a little bit stuck, and so it's very very effective on that as well. And then we finish them up with something called a fiber cutter, which. Uh, is uh kind of like a massage but it also has a vertical component so you can speed it up and slow it down to control the depth that it penetrates into the tissue so the healing frequencies can be controlled uh in that fashion. And um it's just you know, some of the results I've had have been have been so unbelievable. I I just uh you know I kinda kinda hesitate to even even uh tell people about it because they think I'm kidding because it's just, it's just so great.
5: Oh yeah. No, for sure. I can vouch for that. Absolutely. With my two animals. I mean, my chestnut horse, it wasn't The horse was not nearly in the condition. The dog was, I didn't, I thought he was, he was getting better, but, um, but it could have pretty much been immediately better. Had I, had I investigated this sooner, but the chestnut horse, I mean, he's doing all of his lead changes all the time. Like it's not a, a Oh, he's a little bit better. I think I feel something. I was like, Wow. Like my all but I thought I had a lot of work to do training wise. And in fact I didn't. The horse understood. He was just a little stuck behind. Um Dr. Griffith located the areas that he saw, which makes total sense when you were working with the animal. It was very interesting to get that other other feedback. Um and it's it really is night and day. It really is. Yep.
9: You know, we can actually get reads off the body so that the animals that don't have a nerve called a recurrent laryngeal uh, recurrent meningial nerve. Uh, like people do so they'll actually give you a little flinch uh, in the areas where the subluxations are so it's really easy to see where they are and you can concentrate on those areas and generally it uh, corresponds with uh, with what the riders feel and that's a that's the main thing and you, you don't really see much difference in, in the animal you know you'll, you'll jog them and trot them out and stuff and, and you you won't see a difference and the adjustment, but the rider will tell you just like you're telling me. The lead changes are coming naturally now; they're easy, especially dressage horses. The riders will get on and say, "Man, that horse is totally different." And uh, so it's a, it's a, it, it can be a, a technique that can, can really help with some of those subtle things that are uh, that are bothering the horse. And the other thing that I've discovered over the years, a couple things, is one is if you if you're getting joints injected, which a lot of people have done on their animals, and that's most of the time, they're, you know, that's something that they need to do. But uh, if you add this adjusting as part of a, a kind of like a maintenance protocol, they don't need to be injected as often and uh, they just do a lot better. And the other thing is, when I first started doing this technique, I, I couldn't believe all the neck problems I was finding that were never apparent or obvious, you know, on just playing physical exam. So it's really a great technique for diagnosing and helping you pinpoint where the problem is as well.
7: Now, uh, Emily, how soon after your first treatment, or how soon did you see results? Like, how many treatments did it take to 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 see something?
5: Oh, the first one on both animals. The the horse kind of I think his 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 ailment was not as severe as the dachshund. Mm-hmm. Um, so like first, first session, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting all my lead changes. Like the horse is jumping super. He got fresh because he was always a bit like a uh, little dull, I guess you'd call him, you know, not, Stuck, yeah. yeah, you know, not, not, no fire. Um, and I mean, I flat almost got bucked off on the canals the n- next day. I was like, whoa, where'd this horse come from? He was like fresh. Yeah, I would
9: tell, <laughs> tell people to be careful, you know, the first time they ride him because, you know, some horses will be exactly like that. They'll be feeling really good. I had one girl with a barrel race, so she almost fell off backwards. The horse took off so fast. <laughs>
7: <You know. laughs> now, so Dr. Griffith, Dr. Griffith, you sound like you are kind of, is this a new technique for you? Is this something you've recently learned? Because you sound so excited about it and so fresh about it.
9: Well, you know, I learned it in 2002, and you know, I, I took an acupuncture course to kind of you know, go along with it, uh, in 2004, but no, it's just, it, I'm you know, it's, it's, it is exciting because I have these, you know, the horses aren't like the dogs and cats, you know, and that's mostly dogs that we see at the small animal hospital but that I, that I do uh, as far as adjusting and the horses will be like Emily's horse where they're having trouble with them, you know, and they're, they're not, they're not paralyzed or anything, but I'm, uh, you know, there's people that come in with dogs that are paralyzed. Well, uh-huh. One guy came in with it last year with a carried a carried a nine month old great dane puppy in. he was you know a puppy like hundred and fifty pounds uh-huh. then to a couple of specialists carried him in he could pick his head up that was it, and you know I'm like, I don't know if we can help this one or not. We adjust these guys sent me a video a couple weeks ago. The dog is running down the beach,
7: oh my uh, gosh. Just-
5: yeah, it is, I it's
9: mean, unbelievable, and I have stories like that with a bunch. You know, all these dogs. You know, I'm I'm like I don't know if I can help this one either. Sure enough, you know, we adjust them. They these are these are animals. Been the neurologist specialist. They come in with a box full of X rays or a CD full of X rays, and we adjust them, and they get better. So it's just it's it's incredible. So it is exciting.
7: Do you, uh, D- Dr. Griffith, are are you a married man? Do you have a wife that sits at home and says, "Can you do my shoulder?" or do you... <laughs> your oh, that, friends that, at
9: parties? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because I'm like, I don't really like going to my mom's house. My dad's doing anymore. Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> Animal hospital girls there are like, we like it when you do it. You know, we want you to do us because, uh, you know, the chiropractor really doesn't do that good. So when I'm doing small animals, if one of them's having a problem, they want me to adjust them as well. And yeah, my wife and my daughter, they, they're both riders and they, they want to get adjusted and you know, I try to help them out when I can, you know. Yeah. It is a human technique that was adapted to animals by a veterinarian out in Idaho. Uh, his name is Dr. Bill Inman. And uh, he's he's a he's a great mentor and anytime I have a problem with the case I can call him. But it's it's great that he shared it with the you know the, the, the veterinary population because uh, it's just it's not something you learn in, in uh, you know, traditional veterinary school.
7: Well, and that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, I live in Phoenix, so obviously you're not going to travel out here. Um, be a heck of a farm call. But how do I find somebody who does what you do? Like all of our listeners in the different areas, how do they find somebody who does veterinary orthopedic manipulation and that they can trust?
9: Uh, Dr. Inman has a website, and, and you know, I think he updates it uh, uh, fairly often as far as the practitioners that have been trained by him and his website is com. It's com, and you can go on there, and there's some information on there about the technique, and then he does have uh, some practitioners on there that have been trained in the technique.
5: Cool. Good deal. Uh, no, it is nice, and for those of you who are coming down to Wellington, for sure this is who you want to look up. Um, can they contact you through the the PA animal website is that p- possible?
9: Actually, it's uh, it's uh, the best way to get in touch with me would be through uh, uh an email, it's palmbeachah at gmail.com.
5: Okay, and you guys should do it because Dr. And- Dr. Griffith is here in Wellington, dogs, horses. I mean, I the, it, it was remarkable, and I, I keep up with it. I'm now I, I can feel it if the horse gets a little locked up, and um, this is for sure going to be part of our our, um, program here. And you can, that the coolest thing I thought really was that you could hear, like you were saying, okay, he's a bit sore here in these ribs. I can feel it here on the the left side and whatever it was with that horse. I felt that I, that resonated with me and I felt it change. And so if you maybe are not sure what's going on with your horse, but you want to take a first step into some investigation, this is a great first step to take before you go and inject everything and, try to you know attack it that way this is actually getting to the root of the problem and um and helping uh work through it it's changing it
9: yeah when i first started doing the technique i had a i had a horse that really it was a race horse and it uh it really wasn't performing the way they thought it would when they first had uh put the horse in the training as a two-year-old and and yeah i looked at it and and yeah it needed the to toxin injected and had a couple other problems we did that and it didn't really help until so i when I first started doing, it, I told the train I said, "Well, I learned this new technique. Why don't we adjust the horse?" And then, the next day, the guy calls me up and goes, "What did you do to my horse?" And I said, "What are you talking about?" I thought maybe the horse, would, you know, we messed them up or something. And he like he had the fastest work in a day, and you know, uh, oh, wow. unbelievable. Wow! So it can make it can make. It, it's it's really not. It, it's something that, you know, you can do to help all the other things that are going on with the horses. And if a horse is having a problem with his joint, that's getting injected, or it's had a sore foot, or you know something like that, that you know you adjust it, you adjust them to, to to clear out all of the uh, subluxations because all that stuff feeds back into the central nervous system and pops the circuit breaker. And so by adjusting them, you've, you've you know you've worked on the the isolated place where the problem is. Now you need to take care of the whole body and get everything straight. And that's that's what I usually recommend.
5: Well, it is effective. You guys check it out. Dr. Tom Griffith here in Wellington. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to
1: talk to us.
9: It's my pleasure.
1: It's a cold, cold place. Six months till dawn. Toes are all delivered. Christmas is gone. There ain't much to do. 36 below. Saddle up the reindeer and have a rodeo Shaking the holiday blues, wearing cowboy boots and faded denim tights Watch Rudolph, Buck, and elf to ride through the northern lights And there ain't no better show And an arena made of snow Santa's a North Pole Rodeo Here they go, Yodelay Lord, 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 Lord. You ain't never seen a bear back ride You've seen it elf on a polar bear's backside Try to toss a dude Round a slick wet seal or a hog tie in our wall, man, that's a slippery deed You shake the holiday blues wearing cowboy belts and faded denim tights I watch Rudolph Buckingham for two ride through the northern lights. And there ain't no better show in an arena made of snow Santa. North Pole rodeo. One more time Yodel A, Yodel